0: All right, good afternoon and welcome to Mito Action's monthly expert series. My name is Stephanie Harry and I'm the patient support coordinator at MitoAction. And we want to thank you so much for joining us today and our presentation with Dr. Marguerite Dwayne on the menstrual cycle as a vital sign in navigating rare disease. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on Mito Action's website, as well as on our Apple podcast, Google Play and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org backslash resources backslash vital sign backslash. If you're joining us via computer, you should see, you should be able to see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the q&a feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Um, We're super excited for your presentation, Dr. Dwayne, and Susie Scheller, our program support leader, is going to go ahead and introduce you a little bit.
1: Hi, I'm Susie, and thank you for being here. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Marguerite Dwayne a board certified family physician and co-founder and executive director of FACTS, F-A-C-T-S, the Fertility Appreciation Collaborative to Teach the Science. This is an organization dedicated to educating healthcare professionals and students about scientifically valid, natural fertility awareness-based methods. Dr. Duane serves as an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University where she directs an elective on fertility awareness-based methods and their role in women's health and family planning. Dr. Duane sees patients with modern mobile medicine, a direct primary care house call-based practice in Washington, D.C., and is currently completing a primary care research fellowship at the University of Utah. Dr. Duane received her M.D. from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and completed her family medicine residency at Lancaster General Hospital in Pennsylvania. She received a Bachelor of Science with honors and a Master of Health Administration degree from Cornell University. Dr. Duane is trained as a Creighton FEM and neo-fertility medical consultant and a teen star educator. She has published articles on the effectiveness of fertility awareness-based methods and the use of apps for tracking fertility. Dr. Duane balances her career as a teacher and family physician with her role as a mother and wife. She is married to a fe- fellow family physician, Dr. Kenneth Lynn, and they are the parents of four young children. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Marguerite Duane.
2: Thank you so much, Susie. I'm so delighted to be here today, and I appreciate you very much the invitation. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen make sure that everybody is able to see the presentation does that look good to you stephanie or susie can you great well wonderful and welcome to those of you who are joining us please feel free to um, put questions in the chat box or raise your hand so we can address them as they go as we go i'm very excited to speak to you today um, about the female cycle as a vital sign in navigating rare disease And we choose to use the word female cycle because we wanna emphasize that the cycle is about so much more than just the menses. The menses or menstrual period marks the end of an ovulatory cycle and it's only one part of a very intricate um, hormonal event, of which ovulation is the key event you'll see in just a minute. The brief disclosure, this presentation is really designed as an introduction and an overview of fertility awareness-based methods and the role that they can play in assessing women's health Uh, Concerns, and we will present a case study of using it in rare disease, specifically in a patient with mitochondrial Mm -hmm. disease. Um, The presentation will not prepare you to teach how to use these methods or necessarily implement them in your own life, but we do have resources at the end. So if you are interested in learning about charting your cycle and how it can serve to help you monitor and manage your health, we'd be happy to refer you to appropriate uh, resources and trained educators. This is our agenda for today's talk. We'll go over some. key terms, as well as describe what the normal healthy female cycle looks like, we'll discuss the different ways that women can chart their cycle, and then we'll highlight how the female chart does serve as the fifth vital sign. Finally, we'll briefly touch on how fertility awareness-based methods may also be used from a family planning perspective, whether couples are interested in using these methods to prevent pregnancy or to achieve pregnancy by working with their body in a more natural, uh, holistic way. So like I said, let's begin with some key terms. The term fertility awareness-based methods um, may be a new term to you. Some people may be more familiar with the term natural family planning, uh, which was coined by the National Institutes of Health in 1974. But essentially natural family planning or fertility awareness-based methods refer to a woman's ability to use daily observations of her physical signs or symptoms that identify where she is in her cycle. Along with algorithms, women can use these methods to identify potential days of fertility. Because women will also track other key aspects of her health, including bleeding days and dry days and um, categorize or characterize her mucus more effectively. These methods can also be used to monitor a woman's reproductive or hormonal health. Biomarkers, you'll hear me use this term quite a bit, uh, refers to the signs that women can observe. These are external observations that reflect the internal hormonal changes that a woman experiences on a cyclical basis. So really the information and the power that comes with the female cycle is in the hands of the woman as she can learn to observe these on a daily basis, which provides critical information about her overall health. I do wanna point out specifically the term of ovulation. We most commonly think of ovulation as when um, a follicle will release an egg, which will then be available potentially for fertilization. But I really wanna point out that ovulation is a sign of health, and it is the key event that happens within a woman's cycle. And it can only happen when her hormones, the intricate orchestration of her follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, estradiol, progesterone, etc., work in such a way that allow for ovulation to occur. So it really is the main event, and it truly is a sign of health. And in fact, FACS will be offering the conference later this month with an entire presentation by one of the leading experts in the field on ovulation as a sign of health. So stay tuned for more information about that. Let's go into detail about a little bit more about the different biomarkers or the signs of the female cycle that women can observe. The first and most important sign are women's cervical fluid secretions or cervical mucus. We like to use the word fluid secretions because people hear the word mucus and think, you know, infection or cold. Really, these are secretions that are produced in the, the glandular cells of the woman's cervix, which is the opening to the uterus, and the type of mucus or cervical fluid secretions that are produced will vary depending on which hormones are predominant. So under the influence of estrogen or estradiol, a woman will produce type E mucus. This is mucus that is clear, stretchy, or lubricative. I often describe it to women as it looks like the raw egg white. When you crack open an egg, and you see that clear, stretchy mucus, um, and that has that slippery sensation. This is the type of mucus that's produced under the influence of estradiol. So again, we refer to this as type E mucus, which is the fertile type of mucus. Type G mucus is produced under progesterone, and it's referred to as gestogenic mucus, hence the name type G mucus. Mucus produced under the influence of progesterone is actually much thicker and sticky um, and basically creates a thick barrier that prevents sperm penetration or other uh, foreign bodies from getting into the woman's, through the woman's cervix and into her uterus. So under the influence of um, progesterone, a woman will produce mucus that is just much thicker, often white and sticky in appearance. The second sign that women can choose to learn to observe which may not always work well in patients with mitochondrial disease, um, is basal body temperature. Basal body temperature is the woman's temperature that she takes every morning at about the same time before she gets up and starts moving around. Typically a woman's basal body temperature will be lower in the first half of her cycle. Then once ovulation occurs as a woman's progesterone rises, her temperature, her basal body temperature will also rise by about a half a degree. And women can note this to confirm that ovulation is observed, uh, has occurred. But again, this may be a more difficult sign for women with mitochondrial disease to be able to observe. The third sign that women can learn to observe are her urinary hormones. There are different devices or tools that women can learn to use to check these. So on this slide, we have an image of the clear blue fertility monitor which will detect estradiol metabolites and luteinizing hormone in the urine. When the woman notes the estradiol metabolites, she can recognize that she's entering into what we refer to as her fertile window, that period of time of potential fertility when a couple could concede. Once the luteinizing hormone is detected, that's an indicator that ovulation is about to occur. There are other devices as well, um, test strips such as approved test strips that can be used to detect progesterone progesterone will only rise once ovulation has occurred. So using test strips to detect progesterone is a good way to confirm if ovulation has indeed occurred, which can be very helpful for couples that are using this from a family planning perspective. However, it's also very helpful in women that may have health conditions related to low progesterone, such as PMS as an example. This is a diagram of a healthy female cycle that shows the relationship between the changes in a woman's hormones and the signs that she can observe, whether it's her basal body temperature or cervical secretions. What you can see here is in the beginning of this cycle, when a woman's estradiol is low and her FSH or follicle stimulating is low, a woman will note dryness. With the Creighton model or the Billings ovulation method, for example, a woman would chart this sign with green stamps. As a woman's estradiol begins to rise, A woman will then begin to note, again, that mucus that is clear, stretchy, or lubricative. And she would mark this on a chart with white stamps that have a baby on it. And the reason we use white stamps with a baby is it indicates that this is the potential window of fertility when a woman could become pregnant. Once ovulation has occurred, you can see the LH spike, this pink, um, this rise in the pink hormone, that is what triggers ovulation. When ovulation has occurred, The remnant follicle forms the corpus luteum, which we'll discuss in more detail. And this then produces progesterone. The rise in progesterone again, changes the cervical fluid secretions so that the woman now may only note um, very thick or white or sticky mucus or even just dryness. Again, the rise in progesterone will also cause that rise in basal body temperature that a woman can observe. And she marks these dry days with the green stamps. Now, if a woman is not pregnant, what happens is the corpus luteum begins to disintegrate and a woman's estradiol levels and progesterone levels will begin to fall. This sends a signal to the brain that a pregnancy or uh, fertilization has not occurred and it causes the brain to trigger menstruation or the menstrual period. Again, we use the term period because in fact, it actually marks the end of a previous ovulatory cycle. This provides a little bit of information about the different stamps and terms that are used in this example um, with the Creighton model. The Creighton model and the Billings ovulation method, which you'll learn about a little bit later, are both methods in which women learn to observe cervical, op- uh, cervical mucus observations, as well as chart bleeding days. Now, bleeding may be due to menses or the menstrual period, but women may also note bleeding for a variety of other reasons, and it's important that women note bleeding with a red stamp. When a woman is dry, she would note this with a green stamp. When a woman notes mucus, initially she would use a white stamp with a baby. But as she becomes more experienced in making her cervical fluid observations, she can begin to distinguish between um, mucus that's produced under the influence of estradiol or the fertile type mucus. And sometimes some women will have a chronic discharge that may be produced under the influence of progesterone or, or infertile type mucus. And women may use a different stamp, again, once they've been working with a trained instructor. The peak day is the last day of peak-type mucus. And this is mucus that is clear, stretchy, or lubricative in sensation. Now, it marks the last day, and so we don't know when the peak day is until the next day, after peak, when the woman notes a distinct change from the mucus the day before to the current day. Once a woman notes her peak day, she then will mark it with a count of three, because we, No, the research shows that ovulation will occur about 98% of the time within two days of peak. Because an egg will only be available for 12 to 24 hours before it begins to disintegrate, um, the window of fertility ends at the end of the peak plus three. So that's why women will learn to count those three days post-peak so she can confirm that ovulation has occurred and feel safe in using this method to avoid pregnancy if that's the couple's intentions. And again, in the post-peak phase, if the woman notes dryness, which is produced under the influence of the progesterone, she would note those days with green stamps as well. This is an example of a Creighton chart that shows various cycles. So the first line shows a regular cycle. It's 28 days in length with a five-day menses and a period of six to seven days of fertile type mucus. Additionally, the luteal phase, which is the second half of the cycle, is approximately 14 days in length, which is the average. Um, and so that's, uh, that is a sign that this is a normal healthy cycle. The second cycle shows a case in which a woman ovulated early. Again, we note that the peak day um, is the best external observation that a woman can observe to indicate ovulation. And again, the peak day with ovulation occurs within 48 hours of the peak day, 98% of the time. So in this example, the woman at her peak day to be here on day nine, which is much earlier than expected, but not necessarily unusual, especially as women get older. In the third cycle, we see an example of delayed ovulation. In this example, the woman began to develop cervical mucus, again, produced under the influence of estradiol. Or perhaps she experienced a major stressor. You know, perhaps there was um, a move or a death in the family or a really difficult test. And you know, we see this a lot in students during finals. The stress can sometimes delay ovulation. So the woman may be the beginning of the estradiol rise. She experiences stress, estradiol levels drop. And then once that stress begins to um, dissipate, the woman again notes that rise in estradiol. In this case, the woman had her peak day on day 20, um, and the cycle itself lasted 34 days. Now, it is important to note that we often think of the normal cycle as being 28 days, as we see in cycle one, but the normal cycle can actually range from 21 to 35 days. So it's important that we look at more than just the length of the overall cycle. We also want to consider the menstrual cycle length, as well as the cervical fluid cycle length, and the length of the various phases, the follicular phase, which is the first half of the cycle and the luteal phase, which is the second half of the cycle. So now that you know a little bit more um, about the normal healthy female cycle, let's talk a little bit about charting the cycle and how it can be used as a vital sign. Again, when we think about the vital signs, most people recognize the vital signs as the four most common, respiratory rate, heart rate, metabolic rate or temperature is a more familiar term, and blood pressure. So these are the four vital signs that indicate that a person is healthy. So you may wonder why we talk about the uh, female cycle as the sign of fertility, I mean, as a vital sign. The reality is is that our vital signs are those elements that we need to survive, to be alive. The female cycle serves as a vital sign because if, if people do not have healthy fertility, the survival of the species is at risk. Again, the fertility does rec- um, is recognized as a vital sign because it reflects the healthy female cycle patterns. Even in men, healthy spermatogenesis or sperm formation is reliant and necessary for the survival of the species. What is important to note is that um, all of the vital signs, including respiratory rate, heart rate, temperature, and fertility, are all dependent on healthy, normal thyroid function. So I mentioned earlier how um, ovulation is the main event in the female cycle, and I want to illustrate here using this diagram. This is an an image of the ovary, and it shows what happens during the female cycle. So during the female cycle, under the influence of follicle-stimulating hormone, the follicle will begin to produce estradiol. One, the follicle-stimulating hormone stimulates many uh, follicles to develop, but one will predominate. And this is called the dominant follicle. The dominant follicle Um, as it matures, will begin to form a cyst-like structure. And once it reaches about two centimeters in size, it will rupture. At the time of rupture, the follicle then releases the egg or the ovum. Once the follicle is released, the the egg is released, that remnant follicle or ruptured follicle forms the corpus luteum. What's absolutely amazing is that the corpus luteum is in and of itself, its own endocrine organ, as it will begin to produce estradiol and progesterone. That's critical for maintaining the uterine lining to allow for implantation of a newly formed human embryo if fertilization occurs. The estradiol and progesterone, again, are critical for maintaining that uterine lining. And if there is no embryo formation, then the estradiol and progesterone will fall and shed the uterine lining, and you get the formation of a new uh, cycle. Um, so I wanna talk about how we also see changes in the uterus itself. And again, this is all dependent on where the woman is in her cycle. In the first half of the cycle, under the influence of estrogen, as the follicle is being developed, the estrogen acts on the lining of the uterine uterus to create and build up this nice, thick lining. Once ovulation occurs and the egg is released, it then forms a nice secretory lining that allows for nourishing of that human embryo. Again, the corpus luteum will then form and continues to produce the estradiol and progesterone to make that that uterine lining secretory and nutritive. That basically allows for the viability of um, of the embryo. If progesterone levels are inadequate, a woman might notice spotting, she might notice changes in mood, she might notice changes in physical symptoms, that all can reflect inadequate estradiol and especially progesterone production. This is one of my favorite slides because it pulls everything together for us. And it highlights what's happening hormonally, how it affects the ovary and the endometrium and the signs that a woman can observe. So you see the pituitary hormones here that are produced Mm -hmm. under the influence, um, I mean, in the brain, and these then influence the production of the ovarian hormones. Follicle-stimulating hormone stimulates the uh, developing follicles to produce the estrogen. The estradiol stimulates the cervical glands to produce the mucus. Once the estradiol reaches a certain threshold level, it then triggers the luteinizing hormone to to release, and that triggers the release of the egg or ovum. After ovulation, again, that remnant follicle forms the corpus luteum, which then causes the rise in progesterone and another slight rise in estradiol and changes the cervical mucus. If fertilization has not occurred, progesterone and estrogen will decrease and you'll get the shedding of the uterine lining. And you can notice the changes in the cervical mucus as well as the basal body temperature under the influence of these hormones. One of the things that I think is really important to highlight in today's presentation especially is how the female chart can serve as a diagnostic tool. And in fact, can help physicians train infertility awareness-based methods and restorative reproductive medicine or RRM to be able to diagnose underlying causes of painful periods, irregular periods, detect polycystic ovarian syndrome and premenstrual syndrome, and even be used to help alleviate postpartum depression and infertility. Unfortunately, most physicians are trained to address the majority of women's health issues or cycle-related issues by simply putting women on hormonal birth control. What hormonal birth control does is rather than actually treat the underlying cause, it simply suppresses all of the women's hormones. So while it may temporarily alleviate the painful periods or make it appear that a woman has irregular periods, What in fact it does is it causes a regular withdrawal bleed without getting it. What is the root cause? The most common cause of painful periods is in fact a condition known as endometriosis. Endometriosis is a condition in which the, the lining of the uterus, the endometrial lining, the cells that form that actually escape from the uterus and implant and grow outside of the uterine cavity. This again is the most common cause of painful periods and a very common cause of infertility. Unfortunately, even in the United States of America, it takes on average 12 years from the onset of symptoms of painful periods to the diagnosis of endometriosis, which in my opinion is unacceptable. Women should not have to wait 12 years of suffering with severe painful periods to get at a diagnosis. The reality is, is with endometriosis, it does require a surgical diagnosis and it requires it be done at the hands of surgeons who are well-trained, typically NAPRO or NAPRO technology-trained uh, surgeons or surgeons trained in minimally invasive gynecological surgery. If you're looking to refer physicians, patients to physicians trained in these methods, I would encourage you to visit the Facts About Fertility.org website as we have a database of physicians. Irregular periods can be caused by a variety of conditions. The most common is polycystic ovarian syndrome, but it can also be caused by functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, which in and of itself is due to stress or overexercise. Um, and these can often cause a wide variety of other issues. With PCOS in particular, one of the most common features is insulin resistance and increased risk for cardiovascular and metabolic conditions. Premenstrual syndrome is again, very common, something I often diagnose in adolescents. And the main cause of premenstrual syndrome is simply inadequate levels of progesterone. Now, when patients have inadequate levels of certain hormone, like if they have hypothyroidism, for example, we treat hypothyroidism by giving the woman back thyroid hormone. With PMS, since it's most commonly caused by low progesterone, you would think that the primary form of treatment would be replacing the woman's progesterone. Again, unfortunately, the way most physicians are trained is to simply give women birth control to shut down all of our hormones. While that may alleviate the symptoms of PMS temporarily, it's not getting at the root underlying cause, and it's not a long-term solution. Similarly, postpartum depression is often a reflection of inadequate progesterone levels. Why is that? During pregnancy, a woman's progesterone levels Progestation, if you listen to the name progesterone, it is the pregnancy hormone because it rises dramatically and very high in pregnancy. Soon after birth, the levels will drop you know, precipitously in some women and lead to the onset of postpartum depression. In fact, this can be treated very effectively with post, uh, progesterone injections um, and can have a significantly uh, positive benefit on the women that receive this treatment. Infertility is very common It occurs in one out of six or one out of eight couples. Um, It's multifactorial in nature. Um, About a third of the time, it's due exclusively to female issues, a third of the time exclusively male issues, and about 40% of the time, it's due to male and female issues. Again, two of the leading causes of infertility are endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome. This is uh, an example of charts. This is a slightly different method that we've talked about um, with the, uh, previously with the Creighton model and the Billings ovulation method, these are examples of neofertility charts, but also use observations of cervical mucus. And this simply shows some examples. In this case, um, line one, we see a woman who has four mucus. She actually only has one day of cervical mucus. Now you may wonder, what difference does it make? If a woman doesn't have any cervical mucus or cervical secretion, she may not note any discharge, that may be a good sign. Well, in fact, cervical mucus is critical for sperm survival and viability. So if a couple is trying to get pregnant and the woman has very limited mucus, sperm may not be able to survive long enough for fertilization to occur. So this couple may be presenting with concerns related to infertility. In the second cycle, we see a woman who has, you know, a period that begins with heavy to moderate bleeding, but quickly changes to light, bleeding with brown spotting and three days of brown spotting, again, brown spotting prior to her period. This can be an underlying indication of endometrial infection, um, which would need to be treated with antibiotics. The third line, again, we see uh, excessive spotting, ooh, excuse me, I'm um, at the end of the cycle. This can often be a sign of low progesterone, um, which if treated with supplemental progesterone can resolve. Another important thing to note is women who have two or more days of spotting prior to her period consistently this may also be a sign of endometriosis. Again, to make the diagnosis of endometriosis, this does require um, surgical evaluation and biopsy. Surgery is also used as a um, treatment as well for endometriosis. And finally, in the last slide, we see intermenstrual spotting. Common causes of intermenstrual spotting include hormonal abnormalities, but also polyps, including endometrial polyps. So again, by using the chart better, clarifying or characterizing when signs are observed, whether it's cervical secretions or basal body temperature changes or bleeding, this can allow us to better evaluate and diagnose the underlying causes. Great question, Susie. I'm gonna answer that question before I get into our case study. So with thyroid being a key to health, how can I get good thyroid care and what should I look for in more integrated care for thyroid? It's an excellent question. Um, thyroid hormone, um, is there are different types of thyroid hormone and there are active and inactive forms traditionally, and typically we will use thyroid stimulating hormone as the initial evaluation TSH levels, the normal range typically ranges from 0.5 to 4.5. And that's considered normal by most lab standards. I will advise in women of reproductive age, our goal is actually to keep the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone between 0.5 and 2.5. And the reason is, is there's research showing and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recommends um, that we keep the TSH lower than 2.5 because greater than 2.5, women have increased risk of infertility and increased risk of miscarriage. Other important things to consider in care of thyroid is nutrition and supplements. Um, uh, Adding selenium, for example, can help aid in conversion of inactive thyroid hormone to active thyroid hormone? That answers that question. So now I'd like to present a case since this is the MitoAction group, I wanted to share a case of a patient um, who again suffers from mitochondrial disease, but who was effectively used Creighton charting to aid in managing her condition. So again, this is an example of a Creighton chart. The top row of numbers shows the day of her cycle, Red stamps indicate days of bleeding, green stamps indicate days of dry, dryness, uh, white stamps with babies denotes um, potential days of fertility or fertile type mucus. Um, and you can see in this first chart, this is a very abnormal period chart, even though it's 27 days long, which most people would consider normal, and her period is seven days long, again, which is normal. She has um, a fair amount of discharge or cervical fluid secretions, uh, initially five days, then it dries up, and she has more, and it dries up, and she has more. And her peak day is on day 22, which leaves us a luteal phase of only five days. The normal luteal phase length, that period of time um, from the peak day to the next cycle is normally between 11 to 16 days. She also has a lot of very light brown bleeding, which again, if you recall from the previous slide, is an indicator of inadequate progesterone. And in fact, That's one of the issues that this patient had was low progesterone. Um, In in the second chart, you can see what happened um, when she received care that used the chart to aid in the diagnosis and management. So this is the same patient. Um, She was receiving patients that are thyroid treatment as well as progesterone support. Um, Typically, when we use progesterone support, we advise women to take progesterone starting on day three after her peak day for 10 days. Um, By observing when her peak day is, the woman will then know when to time taking of the medication. And as you can see, this was a much healthier cycle, 24 days in length, a six-day menses, um, not nearly as much cervical secretions, shorter than normal, but again, at 53, this is not uh, unexpected. And then a normal length luteal phase of of 12 days. So again, in this patient case, the woman had low progesterone, which can often lead to miscarriage. Why? If a woman only has a five-day luteal phase, it's important to note that when fertilization occurs, it occurs in the distal fallopian tube and it takes about five to nine days for that newly forming human embryo to implant into the lining of the uterus. So if her luteal phase is only five days, the woman may not have enough time to build up a thick enough uterine lining for implantation to occur. And or she may not have enough progesterone to maintain the lining leading to miscarriage. Again, we talked about how premenstrual spotting, two or more days prior to the period, can also be a sign of endometriosis. And that was also the case with this patient. Um, when we can identify it, we can treat it more appropriately and get better um, resolution of symptoms and management. So these are all really important in in um, not only diagnosing, but in managing patients. Here's uh, an example of um, the testing that we can do. Oftentimes um, we often think of only doing, as physicians we're trained to just do what we, we refer to as a day 21 progesterone because we know progesterone will peak seven days after ovulation. Now a day 21 progesterone presumes that ovulation will occur on day 14. And that presumes that a woman has a normal 28 day cycle. Well, the reality is, is even in women with normal healthy cycles, ovulation occurs on day 14, only 15 to 20% of the time. So simply ordering her progesterone on day 21 is not sufficient because that may not actually be capturing her peak uh, level of progesterone. But when a woman is observing her peak day, we can do um, what we call a post-peak series where we check her progesterone. A normal progesterone curve um, after ovulation should rise gradually and then gradually fall. In this patient's case, you can see her progesterone barely went up and this is gonna contribute to that premenstrual spotting and also um, mood instability and other physical symptoms. Again, using the hormone study, timing its peak allows for better identification and management. Now I'd like to just briefly touch on various types of fertility awareness-based methods that women can learn Again, I am trained as a Creighton medical consultant, as well as a, a neofertility and FEM medical consultant, but there are a variety of methods. There are cervical mucus only methods. Um, these primarily are the Billings ovulation method and the Creighton model. Um, these are very helpful because they allow women to identify when ovulation may occur. The two-day method is another method that can be used in women who are very healthy um, and do not have chronic discharge, um, but I don't typically recommend that to most of my patients. The symptothermal methods are methods that combine cervical mucus observations with basal body temperature. This cross-check of signs can provide a little bit more um, confidence for women in identifying their fertile day, their fertile window, because of that rise in basal body temperature after ovulation. However, as I noted, sometimes the basal um, body temperature in women with mitochondrial disease may not be as easy to track. The next type of methods are the syndohormonal methods. This includes the Marquette model, which uses the clear blue fertility monitor to detect estradiol and progesterone metabolites in conjunction with cervical mucus observations. FEM, which stands for fertility education and medical management, women can observe cervical mucus, plus or minus urinary hormones, including progesterone as an example. And finally, some people may still use um, a calendar-based method such as standard days. Again, these may not be as helpful, when using these methods as a vital sign to better track the female cycle. So when I'm working with women with underlying health issues, I will often recommend Billings, Creighton, Symptothermal, Near Fertility, Femme, or Marquette. A question I get a lot um, when it comes to FABNs is how effective are these methods from a family planning perspective? And What I wanna point out is fertility awareness-based methods are in fact the only true forms of family planning because couples can use these methods both to prevent pregnancy as well as to achieve pregnancy. In terms of using these methods to prevent pregnancy, here's the data from the highest quality research studies that shows with correct use, these methods can be extremely effective with less than 1% unintended pregnancies. With typical use, because these methods are behavioral in nature, um, effectiveness rates can be less and ranges from 90 to 98%. What is important to note with using any fertility awareness-based method is it does require the couple or women to learn from a trained instructor. Um, women who are motivated to use these methods will use them more effectively and partner support is also critical if using these methods from a family planning perspective. That being said, I'm a big believer that women as young as 12, 13, 14, when they go through puberty should learn to chart these methods, not necessarily from a family planning perspective per se, but more so as a tool to monitor her health. And when we look at the effectiveness rates of these methods compared with conventional forms of birth control, and in particular methods that also require behavioral modifications, such as taking a pill on a daily basis, you can see with correct and typical use, the rates are comparable. With long acting reversible contraceptives, these may be more effective for preventing pregnancy, but it really removes the locus of control from the woman, and it comes with a whole host of side effects that may not be tolerable to women. The important thing to note is fertility awareness-based methods have been recognized by the World Health Organization as the only form of family planning with no medical side effects. So I just really want to conclude by highlighting charting the female cycle is for everyone. As I noted, it's not only for couples using it from family planning perspective, but it's a great tool to teach teenagers to be able to identify cervical fluid observations, predict when their next period, Um, because it reflects the underlying science of what is happening in the female cycle. These methods can be used in a wide variety of patients from all over the world, whether single or married, um, whether of low health literacy or not, these methods are available for everyone and should be made available to everyone. So with that, I just wanna conclude and invite anybody that is interested in learning more about these methods to visit our factsaboutfertility.org website We will be hosting a virtual conference around the world in 80 days, where we will host four half day sessions, introducing uh, fertility awareness based methods and the critical role it plays in family planning and women's health. So we certainly invite you to visit our website to learn more. And if you're interested, we invite you to register for any and all of these sessions. With that, I just want to share this slide, which shows additional learning opportunities. These are all available on our website. If you go to our website, factsaboutfertility.org and click on our physician clinician educator uh, database, we provide links to each of these methods there as well. I'll leave it on this slide with factsaboutfertility.org. We do offer a variety of educational presentations, primarily geared for the medical community, although we do have presentations now both for adolescents and adults who are interested in learning more about the facts about fertility and fertility awareness-based methods. So thank you very much and I'm happy to take additional questions.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Duane. Um, I know that this will be very, very helpful to patients and we've had a couple questions come in and so let's go ahead and get started. Um, uh, One person asked if you could expound on the basal body temperature of mitochondrial patients. Um, You mentioned a couple times that this might be a little bit different for mitochondrial patients. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just a little bit, I'm certainly not an expert in mitochondrial disease. I've learned more in caring for one of my patients that, that, that that does have this disease. And typically my understanding is that you may not notice as great a shift and in patients with mitochondrial disease, they may have a naturally lower basal body temperature. Now it doesn't necessarily matter the, the degree of the temperature, but what you really want to be able to see is that shift. And so sometimes you may not see as distinct a shift um, in the temperature itself.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. Um, another question is, is how does, how, does the, um, how, what has, how does the, how does the mitochondria play into the fertility process?
2: So that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we've seen in patients with mitochondrial disease um, they tend to have a higher incidence of endometriosis. Um, and again, endometriosis is one of the most common causes of infertility. Um, so it's important to, you know, if you do suffer from, endo- uh, from mitochondrial disease to make your clinician aware of it. Again, with endometriosis, it's not something that is easily, well, it is easily diagnosed if you know to look for it and if you know what to do the surgery for it, but because it often presents as painful periods, Women, unfortunately, concerns are often overlooked or downplayed and not fully investigated. But if you're charting, you have a history of mitochondrial disease, you see the signs of premenstrual spotting, we encourage you to push your doctors to get an accurate diagnosis um, and treatment for that condition.
0: So do you think that using this method, if you're having a hard time proving to your doctor that Um, you might be having signs of endometriosis. Would this charting method help kind of give Um, them information?
2: That's a great question. I would love to say yes. But unfortunately, the reality is is most physicians are not familiar with charting of the female cycle and fertility awareness-based methods. And this is why we actually started FACTS. We teach a medical elective offered to medical students throughout the country, and it is the only medical elective of its kind. Our research in the last decade has shown less than 10% of physicians are knowledgeable about these methods, so it can often be hard to find physicians um, that are knowledgeable. That's also why we've begun to develop this database of physicians. For endometriosis in particular, there is another website, Nancy's Nook, that provides really good resources about physicians who have more training in dealing with endometriosis specifically. But if you're looking um, to work with a physician we encourage you to find a physician that is trained in a fertility awareness-based method um, or restorative reproductive medicine. And again, you can do that via our website. Um, We did a survey of patients and their experiences in discussing their use of fertility awareness-based methods if they bring their chart into their physician. Um, This survey was done about two or three years ago. And sadly, about a third of the women that responded, we had almost a thousand women respond to this Facebook survey in a 72-hour period. (laughs) Almost a third of them said that their doctor had laughed at them or mocked them and said that this was really not useful information, which unfortunately reflects the ignorance of the physician. But the reality is, is because we don't learn about it, we don't know that this is a good tool. So at FACTS, we are working very, very hard to change that, just as you at MitoAction are working hard to change um, the lack of information and understanding mitochondrial disease. And I encourage my colleagues to listen to your patients again, I am certainly not an expert in mitochondrial disease, but having had the opportunity and the privilege of working with a patient that suffers from this disease, who so willingly shares information and explains, it's given me the opportunity to learn more so that I can better understand and care for her and potentially have this information at my fingertips if I encounter or or, um, care for other patients with mitochondrial disease. So bottom line, I don't wanna discourage a woman from sharing this information with your doctor, certainly do because you do deserve the best care, but also don't be surprised if they um, are not knowledgeable. Um, And if you wanna share the facts with them about fertility awareness-based methods, we've developed the Share the Facts folder that provides an introduction to these methods for physicians that's available to anyone that makes um, a donation to Facts. We'll send it to you to share with your physician so you can help them to see that there is solid science supporting these methods.
0: So based on what you shared about the link between um, mitochondrial disease and endometriosis, do you um, feel like it is logical if you have a patient with mitochondrial disease? or have a patient with endometriosis um, who who once the endometriosis is removed, is still having symptoms like, is it logical to test them for mitochondrial disease, or like how strong is the correlation? Do you feel? Yeah, that's
2: like? a great question, and to be honest, I'm not sure how strong the correlation is. Um, I would say if, you know, following surgery they've had a resolution in symptoms, then probably not. But if the symptoms are still persisting, um, it would be it would be um something to consider. Um, I also noted there's a question in the chat box about what is good for painful periods and is low dose naltrexone okay to take? Um, so, painful periods typically, it depends on what the underlying causes. Um, oftentimes, especially in adolescents, if surgery isn't an option right away, we recommend using non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs like Advil or ibuprofen or Aleve. Um, and again, this is where charting is very, very helpful. In my patients with painful periods, I actually have them start the nonsteroidal a day or so before they expect their period to begin, because what the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do is um, it uh, it interferes with the prostaglandin production, and is what causes the painful periods. By starting the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory before the period, you actually short circuit that pro- prostaglandin production and can significantly alleviate um, a woman's painful periods. I just had a 30-something-year-old woman. We just started this on and she was like night and day from one period to the next, when she was able to identify her peak day, know how long her luteal phase typically is and begin to premedicate because she could identify when she was likely to get her period. Very, very helpful. Um, With regards to low dose naltrexone, that is something I use quite a bit um, in patients with painful periods and endometriosis and other underlying autoimmune um, disorders. Uh, For more information about low dose naltrexone, I would refer anyone to listen to a wonderful YouTube video by my good uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Phil Boyle. Um, I believe he has a YouTube channel and his last name is spelled B-O-Y-L-E. He gives a great presentation on low dose naltrexone um, and its role in addressing a wide range of women's health issues, including painful periods. So definitely check that out for more information.
0: So we have another question that just came in and it said, Two birds, one question. Menopause can be tricky for women with mitos. Some have daughters entering into puberty. Could you describe a little of your experience with menopause and teens with rocky cycles? <laughs> Love
2: this question because this is my life right now. I myself have a 13, soon to be 14 year old. Um, and I have to say it's, it's quite interesting going on this journey uh, together, um, you know, because you do. You see a lot of the same like irregularity in the cycle, you know, changes in the mood, um, I, I for one will tell you it's given me a lot more empathy watching my daughter go through some of these emotional changes as I'm going through them uh, similarly. Our presentation at FACTS that we offer for teenagers, we actually strongly encourage um, young girls to watch with their moms. Because again, a lot of women don't necessarily the importance of charting their cycle or have never been exposed to this concept or have learned to do it. But it's also not too late. I currently have a 49 year old patient um, who only learned to chart within the last year or two because she was suffering from debilitating perimenopausal symptoms. Um, she was a religious sister her whole life. So she never needed to learn to chart from a family planning perspective because she was never sexually active, but it was incredibly helpful for her to learn to chart with the Creighton model. So we could, again, identify some of those underlying hormonal abnormalities and treat it by using bioidentical estradiol and progesterone. Um, So I, I think for moms and their daughters, again, I'd encourage them to check out our teen presentation, Know Your Body, and our general presentation facts about your fertility, and perhaps consider learning to chart together. It's never too late to be educated and empowered about the way our bodies are functioning and use that information to help us better monitor and manage our health.
0: So there's an other question that came in. Um, It said that some, some women have tremendous difficult time or could die if they become pregnant. Some in the Mito community have been asked to double contracept. How effective are these methods for women who face dire consequences with pregnancy?
2: Excellent, excellent question. And I've cared for lots of women, not only Mito patients, actually um, I've only had the one Mito patient, but I, I have had other patients with various serious health conditions, heart conditions, for example, where pregnancy could be fatal. Um, The important thing to note is that during the course of the female cycle, the, the window of fertility when a woman can conceive is relatively narrow. Again, a woman will ovulate once per cycle. And once she ovulates, that egg will be available for fertilization for about a 12 to 24 hour window. Now, she doesn't have a 12 to 24 hour window of fertility. It's actually can range anywhere from three to six, even up to seven days. And that period of time is determined by the the cervical fluid secretions prior to ovulation. With women who have very serious reasons to prevent pregnancy, I advise them to only use the post-ovulatory period to engage in sexual relations. Once a couple or a woman can, cons- can confirm that ovulation has occurred um, because she notes a distinct change in her cervical fluid secretions, she notes that rise in basal body temperature, she can test her urinary progesterone, um, then she can feel safe that ovulation has occurred. I can tell couples, you can have sex all day, every day for the last 10 to 12 days of your cycle. There's no way you're going to get pregnant. Unintended pregnancies with fertility awareness-based methods Typically occur um, in the preovulatory phase before ovulation. And if women fudge on the rules, like so, one of the rules with um, most of the methods is in the preovulatory period, you, you're only supposed to have sex every other day because if you have seminal fluid residue, you need to be able to distinguish that from cervical fluid secretions. If women don't obey that rule, or if they have sex in the morning, um, preovulatory, you're only allowed to have sex at night because you need to make sure you don't have any cervical fluid during the day, so it's important to learn from a trained instructor. That's critical. Um, The motivation, certainly women with serious health conditions can be very motivated. And partner support, because if you need to limit, you know, sex to like the second half of your cycle, you know, there's going to be a two-week period where you may not be able to engage in sexual relations. All that being said, studies of couples that use natural or fertility awareness-based methods have found a couple of really important things. One, Couples that use these methods have sex just as much as couples that use conventional forms of birth control. It's just not typically like as regular, like every three days, like they may have sex like once twice in the beginning and then four or five times toward the end of the cycle. And very importantly, um, levels of sexual satisfaction in sec- uh, with their sex life uh, is very high. One study showed 60, I think it was like 63 to 75% in men and women. So um, for women that do have serious reasons, I think fertility space methods still can be very effective, and you avoid the side effects with hormonal birth control. And it's important to note, when a woman takes hormonal birth control, because it's suppressing her cycle and suppressing her hormones, it can affect a whole host of other things. Estrogen and progesterone, although we think of those as reproductive hormones, actually play a critical role in um, brain function and mental health. And so we don't want to necessarily dismiss that. Um, and we want to recognize the important role and recognize that when we're suppressing those hormones, it's not only going to suppress our ability to get pregnant, but it may affect us adversely in other ways. This is why women, I mean, the research shows that women who take hormonal birth control have much, much higher rates of depression. Um, and so, you know, I, I just want to encourage women there are other options. And if they're interested, find a trained instructor. You can find those through our factsaboutfertility.org website. And work together with your partner and your instructor to learn how to use the method effectively. Susie um, herself is a trained Creighton instructor, is outstanding. You know, I know she's seen a a few of my patients, been very, very helpful. And I think she could certainly speak to this um, as well.
1: Yes, and you can always reach me on the MitoAction site or my MitoAction email, susie at mitoaction.org, spelled S-O-O-Z-I.
2: I see one more question from you, Susie. How long would well-trained clinicians should it take for a diagnosis with painful periods ideally? Um, so if a woman is charting, um, I would say anywhere from three to 12 months. And part of it depends if endometriosis is the cause um, whether or not you can get surgery. I have a colleague in mine, in ob who does surgery. I um, mean, she's actually gotten pushback from her hospital about wanting to do surgery in teenagers because they're like, oh, that's not necessary. But it is in order to make the diagnosis in order to effectively treat it. So, um, you know, but if you're not, you know, pursuing the surgery option, this is why endometriosis can take up to 12 years, which is really not an acceptable wait time for women.
0: So we had another question come in. It says menopause can be a tricky time for a woman with mitochondrial disease. What can you say about your experience with care of women in menopause?
2: I'm sorry, can you repeat the second half of the question? What can yes? I'm sorry.
0: Um, it says, what can you say about your experience with care of women and menopause?
1: Uh I
2: can say I'm learning a whole lot and having a whole lot more empathy given my current state. Um and I'm attracting more patients with menopause. Um, one of the biggest challenges with perimenopause is um again, the cycle, the follicular phase, the first half of the cycle tends to be shorter. And part of this is that women do not uh, they're not, they're not developing as healthy a follicle. When they don't develop as healthy a follicle, the resulting corpus luteum may not produce enough progesterone. Progesterone is actually a really important hormone for sleep and women with perimenopause will often experience sleep-related issues. And that's why it's really, really important to a- attend to a lot of lifestyle things. Now, asking women in their you know, late 40s, early 50s, who may have young children, demanding careers, you know, busy lives, to make sure they're eating well and going to bed early and at the same time every night and minimizing stress can be a really, really challenging thing. But it is very important to attend to those lifestyle factors like having a regular sleep schedule. Um, If necessary, using things like melatonin to help support sleep. But even sometimes using supplemental progesterone under the um, direction of a physician to help improve sleep. Um, Often you can see other symptoms related to uh, hormonal imbalances with estradiol, hot flashes, for example, which tend to occur at night, which can also interrupt sleep. I, re- I mentioned the patient that I had, uh, who is 49, who only recently started to learn to chart because of her perimenopausal symptoms. Insomnia was a major factor. Brain fog. She felt like you know, she just couldn't kind of focus. Um, she's now on um, a well-tailored uh, regimen of bioidentical estradiol, progesterone, and levothyroxine is doing so 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 much better Um, i also just want to point out that you know menopause since the time that i was trained as a physician more than 20 years ago has really been painted as a disease kind of like pregnancy is painted a disease the reality is is that um these are stages of life these are transitional times and in other societies, in other countries, there's not the market for menopausal treatment because we recognize this is a normal transition. As you go through a normal transition, there are gonna be lifestyle things you might need to change. Once a woman has a baby, she's gonna need a lot more sleep. She's gonna need a lot more food. As long as you can attend to those things appropriately and provide the appropriate level of you know, physical support, nutritional support, emotional support, um, and just educational support by helping them understand you know, you, you are going to need more rest, or you might need a more regular sleep cycle, or you may need more protein to help with your energy level. Um, you may need, um, supplements to help, um, with support your hormonal balance, then people can understand and recognize and better support themselves. Um, so yeah, so hopefully that answers answers that question as well.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. I think I think we've gone through all of the questions. I actually have one last question, if you don't mind. It's, sure. you, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned that uh, there's a relationship between um, mitochondrial disease and endometriosis, but I was curious if you knew if there's a relationship between that and the polycystic ovarian syndrome, if there's been any correlation.
2: Um, that's a great question. So I will say uh, endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome tend to co-occur Quite a, a fair percentage of the time, I think it's anywhere thirty to fifty percent. Um, we see both conditions together. I am not as familiar, and maybe Susie is about the relationship between PCOS and mitochondrial disease. Susie, do you know the?
1: Yeah. Answer? Um, well, the answer is yes. There is a correlation with mitochondria, and you know some of the things. If you put polycystic ovarian disease and quilts and mitochondria or endometriosis and mitochondria into like the PubMed or some of the other search um, engines that people use, um, you'll find very sound scientific evidence that they are related to um, the status of the mitochondria. But this is an area like, for instance, when I saw Dr. Corson, for the first time, I was in perimenopause, and he was in the process of diagnosing me looking at family history, which is also super important for looking at all of these things. But the takeaway is that I said, why did my mom get so sick when she was in her 40s? And now I'm the same thing happening. And he said, we don't know why hormones affect mitochondria, but hormones are the biggest game changer in, in understanding these, these transitions, mitochondria will have their cascade of symptoms because they like homeostasis. Um, so when we have these hormonal swings, you said we don't understand the relationship between these two. So I think um, that by studying Creighton model or any of these methods that elucidate what's going on in the woman's body with the hormone is going to help further um, a better understanding and a better healing for some of these diseases that are becoming so prominent and chronic in our society. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that, yeah.
2: Yeah, great explanation. And thank, I just wanna say thank you to both of you and everybody with MitoAction um, for what you're doing. Again, as a physician, there's so much that we have to learn in medical school mm-hmm. and yet there's so much that we don't learn. And so it's really important um to continue to make sure to share this information again i wouldn't know nearly as much if i didn't have a patient that was an active you know educator of mine and i would say to my medical colleagues never stop learning and most importantly never stop learning from your patients because your patient is the best expert in their own health so thank you so much
0: Dr. Duane, thank you so much. Thank you for your humble spirit and your willingness to learn alongside of your patients. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. and, And we really, really appreciate that. Um, Just as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again or share with others. You can also find the full catalog of the expert series presentations on our Apple podcast, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website at www.mitoaction.org. Thank you for joining us today and have a wonderful weekend. We look forward to
1: staying in touch until next time. Thank you.
2: Thank you.